You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Before getting into the text, I want to begin by sharing with you a bit of history about the town I grew up in, uh, Dubuque, Iowa. It was founded by a French-Canadian fur trader. Not really relevant to uh, what I want to say, but hey, it's kind of fun information if you love history. Uh, The fur trader's name was Julian Dubuque. It was founded in 1785. In the 1800s, there was an influx of immigrants moving from Dubuque and out of Europe and the East Coast cities. They're just getting too crowded. People are like, I'm out of here. I need some land. And that first wave of immigrants were Irish Catholics. And so they, they came to Dubuque, they, they made their residence on the south side of Dubuque, and there were so many Catholics, that particular area of the city became known as Little Dublin. Now, again, I'm from Dubuque, so if I go back, like, you got the Irish pubs in that part of town, they're everywhere. They've made their mark, and they ain't going anywhere. Well, they came in mass, and then shortly thereafter, Germans immigrated to Dubuque in mass. They settled north and east of the Irish. After the Irish and the Germans established themselves as the two majority ethnic groups in town, tensions began to rise. The Irish did not like the Germans. The Germans did not like the Catholics. The Irish never went to the German side of town. The Irish never went to the German side of town. The Germans never went to the Irish side of town. Even if a German was Catholic, like most of the Irish... Nationality informed the negative view of the adversary. At least you think this kind of prejudice only existed way back in the day. Let me tell you about Dubuque circa 1990s. In the 1990s, an unusual amount of national attention was put on to Dubuque. Like a spotlight, the entire country was trying to figure out what was going on, and why. Like, I remember it. NBC News, CNN. This wasn't political season, right? There was something going on in this particular town, and everyone's trying to figure it out. In Dubuque, where the majority of people are white, a cross was burned next to a garage of an African-American family. It was discovered in the ruins of this cross that KKK lives was inscribed or inscripted. It was not long when the KKK did come to Dubuque to hold a rally. There were fights in the schools. The city was divided about what to do. I provide this bit of history so that I can ask this question. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to these situations? It is this question we can explore from Acts 10. As you consider the implications of Acts 10, I want you to bear in mind what R.C. Sproul said about this particular chapter. He said this, Acts 10 is one of the most important chapters 
in the entire book of Acts. Now just pause there for a moment. Consider what we've seen throughout Acts. We got like great commission from Jesus, ascension, Pentecost, people getting saved, miracles, people rising from the dead. So much has happened already as we've journeyed throughout the book of Acts. Now R.C. Sproul, an eminent scholar and theologian, says this is one of the most important chapters in Acts. We ain't saying that flippantly, and he's saying it for a reason. I should continue his quote, perhaps. <laughs> one of the most important chapters in the book of Acts, if not the most important chapter, Actually, he says, this is quite an audacious statement, it is one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament because it brings to our attention in an extremely important moment in redemptive history, a time of transition from the old way of doing things to the new epic of God's redemptive activity. Acts 10, and in particular today's passage, does not explore the great doctrines of the Christian faith per se. It does show us the power of gospel and doctrinal truth when, is it, when it is applied to the Christian life. As we turn the page from Acts 9 to Acts 10, we encounter another scene change. Kind of talked about that last week. Several scene changes going on. If you stop and look at where we've been since the beginning of Acts 9, there has been a considerable amount of movement with several scenes. We read how Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. Christ saved Saul. When Saul arrived in Damascus, he went away to Arabia, went away for probably about three years, came back to Damascus. When he discovered that a bunch of Jews are now trying to kill him, so what's Paul got to do? He gets out of Damascus. Now he's going to Jerusalem. We're still in Acts 9. And then we have a pivot away from learning about Saul and what's going on there. And we're back to Peter. Peter's making the pastoral rounds in Joppa where where he heals Aeneas. And then at the end of Acts 9, Peter's in Lydda where he prays for the life of Tabitha who is brought back to life. A lot of movement in just a few pages in your Bible. Acts 10 shows us another sudden movement in the narrative. We also see that this story is so important that it spills over into Acts 11. Now this story focuses on and revolves around a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile. Now, before exploring the passage and why Cornelius being a Gentile is significant, I want you to note the pattern that will only continue throughout the remainder of Acts. Part of the reason why Acts is in your Bible is to show you the message of Christ, the gospel, goes from this isolated place in the world with this isolated people, and it goes to the nations. The breakneck speed of Acts is meant to show us the necessity and urgency of taking the gospel message to the ends of the earth. In each location where the gospel is being preached, all these different scene changes, we see it having an effect in new ways. Each location where the gospel is being preached is making an impact on people. And now Cornelius, a Gentile, 
is representative of the gospel going to people and places no one could ever had imagined at the time. There's a lot going on, I'm sure you noticed as we read that passage, as Aaron read that passage, a lot going on in 33 verses. So I'm going to kind of restate the scene, help get our mind around it, and then we'll look at what we can learn from this particular passage. So in this passage, we see God planning this divine meeting between Peter and Cornelius. I mean, we got visions, we got trances, we got angels, we got all the supernatural going on here. It's a divine meeting that pushes forward the advancement of God's kingdom. It says Cornelius is a centurion of the Italian cohort. Uh, What this means is that he's a military man and he's got some rank. He's probably overseeing 100 soldiers. And he is in Caesarea. The more significant details are that Cornelius was a man who feared God. We also read he gave to the poor. And it's also said in our passage that he prayed often. It's speculated, and I think it's correct, that Cornelius is a Gentile who converted to Judaism. We don't know what his previous faith was, but whatever he was, he converted to Judaism. Aside from circumcision, Cornelius probably participated in regular Jewish worship. He would have been thought of as an outsider by ethnic Jews. Nonetheless, at some point, he did probably convert. I think the details of his charity and devotion are meant to indicate like his religious convictions. That's why Luke puts them in there. Then we read that Cornelius has a vision where an angel told him to send two men to Joppa to fetch Peter. Hey, get these two guys, need go to Joppa, Peter's there. It's not like anyone's texting or emailing or calling back and forth. The only information Cornelius has to go by is what came from the angel. Cornelius was not told why Peter was to be fetched, but Cornelius obeyed. Instead of getting, giving orders, which is what Cornelius usually did, he was now obeying orders. Meanwhile, in Joppa, so kind of at the same time, say we got a, we're looking at a TV and we got two sides of the TV going on. What's going on in Caesarea? Now we got, meanwhile, in Joppa, Peter fell into a trance, verse 10. He had this bizarre vision, but it was not without purpose. Here's what he saw, and I'll quote it right from the text. Peter saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, first time I read that, second time, tenth time I read that, I'm like, what is going on here? We got this sheet descending, animals, reptiles. I hate reptiles. What's going on here? This is bizarre. While Peter, while acknowledging the divinity behind his vision, responds and effectively says to the Lord, I can't do it. I can't eat what is forbidden by Jewish law because it's unclean. Verse 14. Like, no way. It's all happened three times. Three times God told Peter to take the animals, kill them, and then eat them. After his vision, the two men from Cornelius kind of arrive to where Peter's at. The Spirit speaks to Peter and says to him to go with these men without hesitation. So he just had this trance. He's seen these things. Knock on the door. Two men arrive. The Spirit says, Peter, go with them. 
without hesitation. The word hesitation, if you're reading the ESV, really means that Peter needs to go with these men without making a distinction about who they are, which is interesting, especially as we see his interaction with Cornelius here in a moment. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter their race, what they look like. doesn't matter. You need to go. When Peter arrives in Caesarea, he meets Cornelius, finally, It is in their meeting where Peter learns about the meaning of this trance or vision. Cornelius discovers why he was told to send two people to Joppa to fetch Peter. So that's the quick restatement about what's going on. What are the details and what are we to learn from Peter's interaction with Cornelius? What are we to make of Peter's refusal to kill and eat as he was commanded by the Lord? Peter's trance and subsequent interaction with Cornelius really does get to the heart of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. The question on the table is what did Christ's crucifixion and resurrection accomplish when it comes to barriers that people put up against other people? How does the gospel inform that? Barriers that can take place in the form of prejudices. Barriers take place in the form of, let me just call it, uncompromising preferences. Many years ago, um, I think I was probably 23 at the time, I held several unwarranted opinions about what the church should look like. Like, we're all kind of positive. We've all done that. Like, it needs to look like this and this and this. this. We all have preferences. For example, I was adamant that in church, people should not dance. People should not jump around or wave flags. And I'm still not a fan. I'm going to admit it. Um, Not really for any theological reason, but simply because it bothers my sensibilities, right? Well, one time... When I was 23, I went on a missions trip. First time I was out of the country to Uganda. And uh, we went to this church in the village on Sunday morning. And man, they knew how to celebrate. They knew how to worship. They were dancing and singing and waving, hand waving. Like, I do a lot of hand waving in worship, but I couldn't do it. I don't hold anything on them. Like, they knew how to worship sang and danced and rejoiced. Even my hips moved a little bit. Now, I'm not saying people can't have preferences. That's not what I'm saying. We all got them. What I am saying is that your unbiblical preferences should not be a barrier between you and another brother or sister in Christ. I learned a valuable lesson that Sunday morning in Uganda The gospel of Jesus Christ transcends cultures, race, nationality, and Sean Powers' preferences. It transcends so that God's people can be united around Jesus and Jesus alone. We are not united around the style of worship. We are not united around my preaching or my preaching style. 
We are not united around this building which will be leaving shortly. We, regardless of where we come from, are united around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter learned a similar lesson, but his barrier was far greater than the barrier for my story. The barrier was great, not only because of what he thought about Judaism when he was taught, but also because of the dynamics between Jews and Gentiles. What were Jewish-Gentile relations like in the first century? Well, glad you asked. A culture was created within Judaism where everything was meant to keep Jews apart from Gentiles. It's like, okay, what can we do to be separate and distinct? Let's do it. Let's interact as little as possible. Like we saw this at the beginning of Acts. Jews wouldn't even go through Samaria to get to their destination. They would go around. Even if it meant four extra days of walking, you kidding me? I mean, that's commitment, I grant that. But it also says something about what they're trying to do. A culture was created within Judaism. Remember what I said. Cornelius was a Gentile who converted to Judaism. Well, despite converting, he would still be treated like an outsider. Acts 10 reverses this precedent. Acts 10 is basically going, nope, world turned upside down. God was telling Peter to eat food that he had always been told not to eat. Along with circumcision and the Sabbath, Jewish dietary laws were important because they showed Jews to be distinct from the surrounding culture. So like, if someone came over to my house and I'm making bacon, which we love bacon at the Powers household, and they're like, no thanks on the bacon. I got a few guesses about what kind of religion they're participating in. Now, granted, some people like bacon, but I don't understand that. But from a religious perspective, they could be a Jew. Like, I can't eat bacon. And what do we hear God say? Kill the pig and eat the bacon. Peter's response to the Lord is a good indicator how important Jewish dietary laws were to his faith, right? Not once, not twice, but three times the Lord had to tell Peter what to do. Now, Peter isn't hard-hearted here, right? I don't think that's the case. He's not concerned with compromising his keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian diet. Peter isn't dense. What the Lord was telling Peter to do was revolutionary, His sensibilities toward non-Jews and his theology was changing as he began to see the massive implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After his trance, it says in verse 17, Peter was perplexed, right? He had a hard time putting the pieces together. Was the Lord really telling him to go eat pork or was there more going on? What Peter needed to figure out was what the Lord said in verse 15. After the second time, this sheet, which is literally a giant sail in the Greek, descended with this food from the heavens. The Lord says to Peter, What God has made clean, do not call common. It did not take long for Peter to receive his answer. When Peter appears before Cornelius, he realizes the vision is not about food. It's about people. 
It says in verse 25, 26, that when Cornelius met Peter, he fell down. And literally, it says, Cornelius worshipped Peter. It's likely Peter's reputation had caused some to treat Peter like some type of deity. But Peter quickly corrects Cornelius, right? To help create a sense of equality between Cornelius and Peter, Peter says, stand up. I too am a man. I, I put my pants in her just like you, man. One leg at a time. Luke, the author of Acts, already hinted at Peter's changing views of non-Jews. It's interesting how he's growing and learning in his faith as we've journeyed throughout Acts. Before meeting with Cornelius, you might remember, Peter was staying with Simon, who was a professional tanner. Now, unless you, like, looked it up, most of you probably don't know what a tanner is, but I'll tell you what it is. Um, We read at the very end of Acts 9, the tanner profession involves taking a dead animal and using their fur to make leather. Because of their work with dead animals, tanners were unclean according to Jewish law. Even the tanner's house where Peter stayed would have been considered like unclean. And now here is the lesson learned by Peter as we've moved from Acts 9 where he was staying with Simon the Tanner as we've gone into Caesarea with Cornelius. It's worth rereading in full. You yourselves know, this is Peter talking, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Like, Cornelius is well aware of Jewish law. He's probably felt it personally after he converted. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So again, this is not about the food. This is about the person. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked him why you sent for me. Peter realizes that his dietary restrictions had become a barrier to sharing the gospel with other people. Now, it needs to be said that on the one hand, Peter was acting like a good Jew, right? He strove to follow the law that had been given by God. But on the other hand, a cultural dynamic was at work. In the Old Testament, God did call Israel to be a holy priesthood. And with that came the law. They were to show the world what it means to follow God. However, Israel began to think that ethnic separation is what it looks like to be saved. In order to maintain religious purity and identity, the dietary laws were added to the covenant. Many religious Jews, and we see this all throughout the Gospels, leveraged obedience to the law at the exclusion of other people. Now, what had been forgotten by Israel in the first century is that they were first called by God to be a blessing to the nations. Think Abraham. Before the law was given, God called them to be a light unto the nations. But with the coming of Christ, the wall of separation between Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and God-fearers, they began to crumble. Jesus crushes the walls we put up and then removes the rubble for good. 
perhaps there's not a better passage in Scripture that explains what is going on in Acts 10 than Ephesians 2. Ryan quoted part of it. I'm going to give you a little bit more. Think about this passage in light of what we're reading in Acts 10. Therefore, remember, Paul says, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by your hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope without God in the world. Verse 13 is so important. But now... In this time, this is what Christ has done. But now, in Christ, Jesus, who once were far off, had been brought near by the blood of Christ. There we see what the cross has accomplished. For he himself is our peace, verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You're the power of the gospel right there. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace. We, got, we don't got two separate groups anymore. We got one who is in Christ. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Ephesians 2 is the message God wants Peter to communicate. Do not forget where you came from. Do not forget what it was like to be separated from God. But now, because of the atoning blood of Christ, you now have access to God by faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can now be reconciled to a holy God through the atoning blood of Christ. And what of the ceremonial laws and the purification laws of the Old Testament? They're no longer a barrier. No longer. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the law, Matthew 5, 27. And if the barrier between a Gentile and God has been reconciled through Christ, then the barrier between Jew and Gentile has also been reconciled through Christ. There are, I think, several lessons to learn from Peter's um, revelation and uh, interaction with Cornelius. As a church, we need to be careful not to create a context or culture of religious legalism. Legalism allows for people to put up barriers. Legalism is in the church takes on many forms. Sometimes it's like really obvious and sometimes it's subtle. Legalism in the church happens when there are gospel add-ons, whether it's explicitly stated or a part of the church culture. To be justified by God, some you'll see this. To be justified by God, you need Jesus plus fill in the blank. Jesus plus, you need to look like us. Jesus plus, you need to sing like us. Jesus plus, you need to have our nationality. Legalistic churches cultivate their own works-based salvation, which is the opposite of the gospel of free grace. 
a way to fight against legalism is to remember why we live for God as a church. We live in a manner worthy of Christ because we have been saved and justified by Christ, the object of our affection, the object of our salvation, Jesus. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of your life and mine and this church, then striving to honor God by how you live is a joy, and there is freedom in how you interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ. There's complete freedom. When the gospel is your foundation, then you see how God's love how he loved you despite your rebellion. You see God's patience as you continue to trip over yourself. Who's tripped over themselves this last week? Me. And yet God has been patient with me. You see God's grace given freely to you through the Son. You see God's mercy, how he, how he extends mercy to you by withholding judgment because of your sin. When you are changed by the gospel, how you look at others changes. When you've been changed by the gospel, the love, patience, grace, and mercy of God that has been poured out to you overflows to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It affects how you parent. It affects marriages. It affects your, how you interact with your neighbor. It affects how you think through and work with and interact with that coworker that is simply driving you nuts. The gospel knocks down barriers that our sin tries to put up. There's no room for legalism in the gospel-centered life and the gospel-centered church. If, the fol if following rules is the foundation, then rules are applied at the exclusion of others. I see it all the time. Rules and regulations can be used and abused. They can be used to create a context where the only people who are allowed on the inside are those who follow the rules. They can be abused to discriminate against others. There's another point of application for us from the life of Peter in Acts 10. It might not initially hit you, so I kind of want to show it to you straight away. It was only a few days prior when Peter was in Joppa being used by God to see Tabitha restored to life. That was last week. And now we read how Peter is learning more about his faith. As he continues to learn, he is also understanding how the gospel is applied to his life and others. In other words, it's not like Peter figured out Christianity right away. I hope you see that. It's not like Jesus ascended to heaven. He's like, I got it all taken care of. Remember, even Paul, after he got saved, he went away to Arabia for three years and then came back. So what does this mean? It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years, 30 days, or three days. We're all continuing to learn and grow in our understanding, in our love and application of the gospel. There is always more. I mean, Peter walked with Jesus. He was taught by Jesus. And after the ascension of the Lord, Peter is still learning because he has this teachable heart. We also can learn something from Cornelius, right? While his understanding of the Christian faith was much less than Peter's, he still obeyed God. 
He could have ignored what the Lord told him, but he didn't. Even though he didn't know why he had to send two men to Joppa, he obeyed. I'm going to be honest. Like If that happened to me, I'd be like, that was just a dream. But there was so much conviction and clarity, not only in how the Lord communicated, but in his obedience to the Lord. So there will be times, right? There will be times when God asks you to do something and it doesn't make sense. God will ask you to do something and the greater context is hidden from you. It's like there's a hundred puzzle pieces and the Lord gives you one. And he wants you to act in faith with that one puzzle piece. Like, I'm just going to brag on this church for a moment. You want to know what I love about this church and how I know it genuinely loves God and loves others? On the regular, I hear a story of how a person or a husband and wife receive clear direction from the Lord to bless other people. I'm serious. I love this church because you all love God and love each other. And when the Lord tells you to do something and it's not for your material gain, you go do it. That's astonishing. People don't act like that unless you've been saved by the gospel. Unless your affection is upon Christ. Even if you're just holding that one puzzle piece. And the Lord's like, go. I hear so many stories of you all going. You lean into the leading of the Lord, which is what faith and action looks like. That's what Cornelius was doing. He didn't have all the answers. Didn't know why. And he obeyed. While the story of Cornelius will overflow into next week as we continue to go through Acts 10, today we see the reason why God providentially brought these two men together. Not only were ethnic and religious barriers broken down because of the gospel, but Cornelius had more to learn. It says plainly in verse 33, Now therefore, he's talking to Peter, now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. He wants the whole story. Tell me. Tell me everything you know about Jesus, what he's done. The irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit is drawing Cornelius to Christ, and Christ is using Peter to tell him about the gospel. How else do you explain his actions and his ongoing pursuit to learn more about Christ? In previous weeks, we've seen people who are hostile to Christianity. Here we see a man as being drawn by the Holy Spirit to learn more about Christianity. By the time we are done looking at what God is doing in and between Peter and Cornelius, Galatians 3.28 is going to be a glorious truth they both embrace. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons or daughters of God through faith. Pause. You are not sons and daughters of God through your works, but through faith. For as many of you were once baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Peter can freely teach and pastor Cornelius because the gospel destroyed the barrier between them. They are going to be brothers in Christ. This church family has deeper ties than your family that connects you by blood. I'm like, I, got, I got kids, I got a wife. Like I, I know the special relationship that exists between me and my children. But that does not compare to being a brother and sister in Christ by faith. blood of Christ connects you to other Christians more than your DNA. It might be startling to think about relationships this way, but it's true. There never needs to be division between Christians because of Christ. There must never be a barrier between Christians because of Christ. The barriers have been torn down by the blood of Christ, which means you are all free to love others well. And when we do that, that's what unity looks like. Ryan, as he led us into worship, <coughs> said a lot about being united in Christ. The negative way to say it is there is no more division. We are united. So as a church, let's make sure we never put up barriers because someone looks different or because of nationality or skin color, ethnic background or age or Hey, hello, Iowa, caucus season, or political affiliation. Instead, let us stand united in the one who brings together people of all shapes and sizes. The one who died and now lives to ensure his gospel message goes to the nations. And that, my friends, is what the world looks when it's turned upside down by the gospel. Let's pray.